Uh, good morning, everyone. We have two Bible readings this morning. Our first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 40. Yes, if anyone requires a physical Bible to read along, uh, please you raise your hands. The, our host team will be able to help you out. One over here. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40, and beginning from verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and a hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our second reading is, from, is the passage that we'll be hearing from today, from Peter's, the Apostle Peter's first letter. And from chapter 1. And I'll be reading from verse 13. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, and from verse 13. Therefore, prepare your mind, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, is the wor and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Father, as we've read in Isaiah, uh, your word endures forever. Father, we pray that this word would nourish our hearts and enliven us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder, when you were younger, just, re just remember far back to when you were younger, did you ever wish you were all grown up? Did you ever wish that you were grown up when you were younger? Um, I was reminded of this time uh, when I was eating lunch uh, with a friend of mine. He had a big party. My friend, uh, his name is Ryan, um, and he was serving out dessert. And has anyone ever had this? It's, um, I think it's called gulab jaman. Yeah. It's like, it's, for those of you who don't know, it's like this uh, sweet, uh, for some reason Indians love sweet things. Um, it's this sweet donut thing that's coated in sugar, deep fried, and then coated in sugar again, and then they served it with ice cream. Uh, and so Ryan was uh, dishing this out to everyone at the party, uh, and his five-year-old daughter, Alicia, who happens to be my goddaughter god, god as well, uh, she went up to her dad with her eyes wide open, and she's like, Daddy, is this dessert an adult dessert? Or can kids have it too? Uh, we spend a lot of our childhoods wanting to grow up, right? Uh, we want to be able to do whatever we want. We want to be able to sleep whenever, eat whatever, go wherever, date whoever. And we all longed for the day where we could finally become adults. And when we get there, the worst thing that can happen is that we keep being treated like children. I mean, sometimes that can be a good thing, right? Adulting is hard. Um, there are bills to pay, there's laundry to wash, meals to cook, appointments to schedule, responsibilities to carry out. And I'm sure all the adults in this room have, at one point in their lives, thought, wouldn't it be nice to be a kid again? Wouldn't it be nice to be a kid again? You know, not a care in the world, not needing to dress yourself, not needing to feed yourself, only worrying about which toys you want to play with and which episode of Bluey you want to watch. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, most of us hate being treated like we're a kid. And as you become an adult, you're meant to become more independent, right? You're meant to make your own decisions. You're meant to become the person that your parents rely on and not the other way around. And this is the right attitude to have 
as adult children to our earthly parents. But when Christians adopt this attitude towards their heavenly father, it can become problematic. And sadly, this is humanity's big problem. Uh, The Bible tells us that all have sinned uh, by disregarding God as their creator and as their ruler. And uh, you may not admit it, but I think we've all desired independence from God at some point. We've all desired to make decisions apart from God. We've even gone so far as to think that we can become someone on whom God relies on, that God needs us. That's how, so, that's how highly we think of ourselves. Christian or not, we have all sinned in this way. And I think it's fair to say that our world will only continue to encourage this attitude. Which means that if you're a Christian, you're going to feel the pull from our culture to grow up. To grow up from being a child of God. And the ongoing danger for Christians is that the longer you spend living in this world, the greater the temptation to disregard or even forget that you are a precious child of your Heavenly Father. And so my prayer is that hearing from God's Word in our passage this morning will help us to maintain and to even nurture our childlike attitude towards God. You see, as Peter continues in his letter to the scattered Christians, he gives us more details about what it means to be elect exiles in this world. And specifically, we learn that as elect exiles, our core identity is that we are children. But we are children with very particular characteristics. Now, you know, every child is unique. Every child is special. What makes the children of God different? And Peter paints this picture over the next few verses. And so if you're taking notes, I've given you guys a sermon outline. You'll see I've left blank spaces. Uh, That's so that you can fill those blank spaces in. um, And so it also keeps you listening. Uh, How we're going to do this is that in every section of the passage, we're going to learn one specific aspect of our identity as children. And then we're going to explore the implication of that aspect of our identity. And so you'll see in the sections, it says, we are dot, 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 so dot, dot, dot. So you can fill those in. So let's get stuck in looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It's there in your Bibles. I'll read it out for us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we see a therefore in a New Testament letter, like here in 1 Peter, it's a signal to us that we need to look uh, to either what's written before or what's written after to find out what the therefore is therefore. And most of the time, it's before. Uh, But uh, often the context and the logic of the argument within the letter that you're reading should make it clear. For us, that therefore points us back to last week when Ben preached through chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. And so to briefly recap uh, last week, 
Last week we heard that uh, we Christians are elect. We're elect because of God's overflowing mercy. God chooses us to be born again, giving us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are elect, uh, but we are also strangers in this world. Because as the chosen people of God, we have been given an inheritance that can neither perish, spoil, or fade. Which means that this world that we live in as strangers is not our ultimate home. And so we are elect exiles. We are faced with trials and testing in this world now, but we are able to rejoice with inexpressible joy because we believe that the resurrection of Jesus means that we have salvation for our souls. And so our experience as elect exiles then is that we know that we are not at home in this world. We know that we long for our eternal home. In other words, as elect exiles, we are homesick. And so that, therefore, brings in all of that goodness from that verse and brings it right here. And the first aspect of our identity is that, if you're writing, we are exiles. And this makes sense of what Peter says next. Now, uh, hands up, who here has watched uh, that classic movie, The Devil Wears Prada? Yes, Ben, put your hand up loud and proud. Um, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where we're at the offices of the runway fashion magazine, uh, and they've just received word that Miranda Priestley, the editor-in-chief, is arriving ahead of schedule. And immediately, the art director, Nigel, uh, he announces to the whole office, everyone, gird your loins. And panic sets in as everyone is frantically running around, cleaning up, changing into their high heels, applying makeup, and getting ready for their scary big boss to arrive. Now, what's interesting is that the phrase, gird your loins, comes from ancient times. And uh, it was a necessary phrase because people wore long, flowing tunics. Now, hands up if you've ever worn a long, flowing tunic. No? I personally have not uh, been accustomed to wearing long, flowing tunics. And so I had to Google what it meant to gird your loins. And so I found this very helpful infographic. So the text is a little bit uh, small there, but let me read it out to you. Number one, the tunic wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor or to fight in a battle, necess uh, necessitating the girding of one's loins. Number two, first, hoist the tunic up so that all the fabric is above your knees. This will give you mobility. Next, gather all the extra material in front of you so that the back of the tunic is snug against your backside. Once the excess uh, fabric is gathered in front, pull it underneath and between your legs to your rear. This feels much like a diaper. <laughs> Five, gather half of the material in each hand and bringing it back around the front. Six, finally, tie your two handfuls of material together and you're all set for both battle and some hard labor. Go forth, be ye men, and gird up your loins. Do you know where the phrase, gird your loins, pops up in the Bible? 
One of the key places is in Exodus 12, where God talks about how his people should eat the Passover meal the night before he would rescue them out of Egypt. And so he says, in this manner you shall eat it. And it says, literally, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That's the idea in the Exodus. And one of the other places is actually right here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, literally, what that uh, what that uh, preparing your minds for action is is having girded the loins of your mind. Therefore, having girded your loins and being sober-minded. And so, in other words, Peter assumes uh, that because we are exiles, therefore, as exiles, we are to be sober-minded, or in other words, level-headed. And we, to, we are to have our loins girded. That is, we're ready to move. We're ready. To, to, we're ready. This isn't like uh, the time when your spouse or your parent or your friend is saying after church to you that we're leaving, uh, which really means that you, you have about 20 minutes before you actually leave. <laughs> no, this is your mum pulling out of the driveway. So you better come to your senses, gird your loins, and start running. And so, as loin-girded, sober-minded, homesick exiles, what are we to do? Well, keep reading in verse 13. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. Now, when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not talking about uh, wishful thinking, like saying, oh, I hope I can get a good parking spot at church today. Hope in the Bible means you can look forward to something with a confidence, with a sure confidence that it will certainly happen. And so what are we confidently looking forward to? Well, Peter points us to the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that this revealing of Jesus is something that will happen in the future And so Peter's actually talking about the time, the future time, when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And when Jesus comes to judge, there is no wishful thinking about the verdict. It is certain. For those who have not entrusted themselves to Jesus, that judgment, that verdict, will be wrath. But... For the elect exiles, Peter says, it will be grace. And so, friends, if you're not yet a Christian, then Peter is urging you to set your hope on grace. And you can only do that by entrusting yourself to Jesus and what he has done for you. There's no hedging your bets here. There's no wishful hope Uh, that you will receive grace. If you don't believe, then the only thing that is certain for you is wrath. But if you are a Christian, then Peter is urging you to continue in hope. Don't dawdle around. Don't hedge your bets. Instead, gird your loins, sober up your minds, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns. 
So that's first, uh, verse 13. And the next aspect of our identity comes in the following verse in verse 14. And this is the verse that Peter identifies us as children. But notice what sort of children? Obedient children. All the parents in the room just let out a, a collective sigh of longing, longing for obedient children. But what does Peter mean by obedience? Well, let's read uh, from verses 14 to 16. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The second aspect of our identity as children is that we are obedient. But when Peter talks about obedience, he doesn't just mean being a rule follower. It's actually much deeper than that. Now, to illustrate this, when I, uh, when I moved to Brisbane, I didn't know there were these things called traffic areas. Um, there's this, I don't know, you, I'm sure you guys grew up with this. Uh, there's this... Uh, there's this thing where, like, even though there's no sign on the street, no indication whatsoever of a parking limit on the street, there is still a parking limit. Um, back in Sydney, if there is no sign, then it's fair game. You can park there as long as you want. But now that I live in Brisbane, I can't go on living as if I'm still under Sydney's parking rules. As an obedient Brisbaneite, I can't be conformed to the laws of my former city. I have to follow, I have to embrace being a Brisbaneite uh, as much as I am still a hard-hearted Sydney-sider. Uh, in the same way, Peter says that as obedient children, we are to be like, we are not to be like who we were before. We are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Instead, we are to be holy. Uh, now, the word holy can be a bit tricky because often uh, people think that holy people are just the very religious people or the very special people, the very good people, the ones who, are, who do enough good uh, to be labelled as saints. Uh, and we're going to think more about what it means to be holy next week uh, when Steve returns to preach on the next passage of 1 Peter. Uh, but just briefly today, uh, the word holy, when it's used in the Bible, it's used to describe the otherness of God. The otherness of God. God is holy because he is different. He is separate. He is other from everything else in the world. And the things of this world only become holy when they are set apart or deliberately separated out by or for or because of God. And so Peter reminds us here that this is exactly what has happened for us. We only become holy because we have been made holy by God. You see, the source of our holiness is not our obedience. The source of our holiness is the holiness of God. And, you know, it can be easy to read the word obedient and to immediately think that the implication is to follow a set of rules. But Peter shows us that it's more than that. 
Being obedient is about no longer embracing your former passions and instead embracing your identity as a set-apart child of the Holy God. Friends, being obedient is about being who we already are. And this means, friends, that we take our conduct seriously. Our thoughts, our actions, our behavior, they are to reflect the holiness of God. Again, not because we're trying to appear holy, not because we're trying to achieve holiness. No, we are to be holy in our conduct because we already are holy, because we have already been called to be the obedient children of our Holy Father. So, as children of God, we are exiles, we are obedient. And thirdly, in verses 17 to 21, Peter reminds us that we are ransomed. Or another word you might want to use is that we are redeemed. It's this idea that we are freed or liberated. Uh, But what have we been freed from? Now, if you want to think about redemption and you want to think about redemption in the Bible, the great Old Testament redemption story is the Exodus, where God redeemed Israel out of slavery from Egypt, uh, redeemed Israel and their girded loins out of slavery from Egypt. And so when we are redeemed, it is typically from some form of slavery. Now, what's the form of slavery that Peter mentions here? Well, it's there in verse 18. Uh, The form of slavery is the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. And so in Peter's time, as he's writing to the scattered Christians, he he may have been referring to uh, some of the pagan traditions that people had followed in the hope uh, of being saved from their suffering. But what might these futile ways look like now? What might these futile ways look like now? Well, to answer that, we might ask this question. What does our culture say that we need in order to live a good life? What does our culture say that we need in order to live a good life? Money. (coughs) Success. Security. Influence, family, affirmation. You see, all these things promise a good life. And indeed, they might uh, deliver on that promise uh, for a short period of time. But ultimately, none of those things can truly save us from suffering. None of these things can save us from death. But because they at first appear to deliver on their promise, that's how they can so easily enslave us. But Peter reminds us that we have been ransomed from these futile ways, but not with perishable things. The the irony uh, of all of this is that money cannot free us from the slavery of money. Have you ever thought about that? More success doesn't free us from the slavery of success. No, Peter reminds us that we have been ransomed in verse 19 by the precious blood 
of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Remember the lamb of the Passover meal that was meant to be eaten with your girded loins? The lamb that was sacrificed so that God would mercifully pass over your household as he enacted his judgment on the firstborns of Egypt. Jesus is that perfect lamb, sacrificed once for all so that God would mercifully pass over in his judgment on the whole world. That was the plan all along. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made known to us now for our sake. We are ransomed, we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And so Peter says that we are to conduct ourselves with fear. We are to conduct ourselves with fear. That seems a bit strange, right? Who has ever associated the ideas of freedom with fear? Well, Peter says that we are to fear God because he is the impartial judge of our works. Now, when you read that, it doesn't mean that uh, we need to start freaking out and think that we must earn our freedom. Because imagine if God were to judge us on the amount of money that we had. Imagine if God had to judge us on the amount of success that we had achieved, the amount of influence that we had exerted, the amount of successful doctors and lawyers that we had reproduced in our children. What Peter has been saying here is that we are not judged on our futile works. We are judged on the precious blood of Christ. God's right judgment of our futile works passes over because we have been redeemed by the blood of the perfect Lamb. And, friends, if you're not yet a Christian, then let me say that you ought to fear God's judgment. God is an impartial judge, which actually means that He's not going to let you off easy. But the good news is, is that if you admit to your own enslaved condition, if you put your belief in the God who ransomed you with the precious blood of Christ, then God's judgment on you will be one of grace, not wrath. And if God's judgment on us is grace, then we don't need to fear judgment. We don't need to fear judgment. But that doesn't mean we're let off the hook. Our conduct ought to reflect the reality of our redemption. And so we don't act like we're still enslaved to money or to family or to whatever it is. We act like those who have been freed, who are no longer slaves to sin. And so we still fear God. But it is not a fear of judgment. Rather, it is a reverent fear that a child might have towards their loving father. So as children, we are exiles, we are obedient, we are redeemed. Fourthly, in verse 23, we are born again. Now what does it mean to be born again? 
Uh, ben mentioned this last week, actually. It, being born again is not like a renovation. It's not like a deep clean. It's not like you've just respawned in a game. Peter says that we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And this imperishable seed, Peter says, is the living and abiding word of God. Unlike the grass that withers, the flowers that fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. Which means that when Peter says that we are born again, it means that we no longer perish. You know, renovations need renovating again. A deep clean will just get dirty again. Respawning in a game just gives you another chance to die. But when we are born again, through the eternal word of God, we will never need to be born again, again. And so because we are born again, Peter says in verse 22, that we are to love one another earnestly. Now, romantic comedies uh, will tell you that in order to love someone, you need to have uh, you need to wait for that warm, fuzzy feeling. Or you need to wait for that sense of overwhelming affection. But what does Peter say here about love? The precursor to loving one another is that our souls have been purified. And they are purified through our obedience to the truth. Now, what is the truth that we are to obey? Well, friends, it's the thing that we've been seeing all the way throughout the passage. It's the truth that we are exiles, the truth that we are obedient, the truth that we are redeemed, the truth that we are born again. In other words, our souls are purified as we embrace our identity as children of God. And all of us, you notice, uh, who are children of God are born of the same imperishable seed, that same imperishable seed, the Word of God, which makes us brothers and sisters. We are of the same seed, we are brothers and sisters. And so this is why our obedience towards the truth is directed towards sincere brotherly and sisterly love, that love that you have amongst your family. And this means that our love for one another is not because we have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is the expression of our identity as born-again children of God who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Being born again is not just about looking forward to your own eternity. It's realizing that you won't spend eternity alone. So this means that as we live uh, as children of God in exile, we recognize that we're doing so together, that we're doing so with love for one another. We are born again, and so we are to love one another. And the final aspect of our identity as children is there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We are like newborn infants. We are like newborn infants. Now, in other places in the Bible, being described as an infant is meant to suggest that you are kind of young in the faith. You're a, you're a baby Christian. 
But I don't think this is what Paul intends when he says it here. Rather what, uh, Paul, not Paul, Peter, what Peter uh, says here. Well, rather what Peter is saying, he says this more as an expression of our dependence. We are not adult children who have obtained our independence. We are infant children who remain entirely dependent on our Father. And that's why Peter says that since we are infant children, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk. And again, uh, the milk analogy uh, isn't meant to mean uh, that it's just the simple Bible stuff that we need to uh, feed on and grow on like in other passages. But Peter uses the the milk analogy uh, because that is what an infant is dependent on for growth. We are so dependent on it that we long for it. Now, what is this pure spiritual milk that we depend on as infant children of God? Well, it's the Word of God. Think about it. How have we tasted that the Lord is good? It is by coming to know who He is and what He's done for us in the gospel of Jesus that we learn about from His Word. And how do we grow up into salvation? We feed on God's Word. We let it nourish us and change us. Now, just as an aside, Peter is using the word salvation here uh, not to refer to forgiveness of sins. Uh, The word salvation is used like that in other parts of the Bible, but Peter here is using the word to refer to our true home that we are awaiting as exiles. It is a salvation from this temporary world, from its trial and testing. It is salvation into eternal life. And Peter tells us to long for this pure spiritual milk, to long for the the Word of God. Now, those of you who have nursed infants know very well how much an infant longs for milk, and they express that longing with every fiber of their being. Now, uh, my sister-in-law, Maggie's uh, brother's wife, just recently gave birth to our first nephew in the family, and he longs for milk. This is him. This is him longing for milk. He's just, he cries, he cries, he cries, because he just needs milk. And as soon as he gets it, this is what it looks like. He's so happy that he's horizontally jumping for joy. When it comes to longing for the Word of God, be like baby Ethan. (laughs) Peter reminds us that as children, we are like newborn infants, not independent adults. We need milk in order to survive and in order to grow. So what has uh, Peter reminded us about our identity as children of God this morning? As children, we are exiles. We are obedient. We are redeemed. We are born again. We are like newborn infants. What this means then is that we are to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed by longing for the word of God conducting ourselves in holiness, in fear, and in love for one another. 
And hopefully we can see, uh, we can all see that if we embrace our identity as children, there is no room for us to grow up from being a child of God. There's no room for us to grow up from being a child of God. And thankfully, there is no need to either. Now, God isn't asking us to move out of home, to get a job, to become independent. Quite the opposite. God is asking us to depend completely on Him. God is telling us uh, to work knowing that the job of saving the world is already done. God is calling us to come home. Brothers and sisters, do you need to repent of your desire to grow up from God? Have you been finding your home in this world rather than being homesick for your true home to come? Have you been delighting in the passions of your former ignorance rather than pursuing the holiness of your father? Have you continued serving the world's futile answers to salvation rather than living in reverence of the one who freed you from those things? Have you been self-focused rather than loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you been malicious, deceitful, hypocritical, envious, and slanderous rather than growing up into your salvation? Friends, I think we all need to repent of all of these things. But isn't it wonderful that we repent as children of a loving and merciful Father? One who, because of the precious blood of Christ, will not show us wrath, but show us grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you and serve you as we should. Father, forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ loving one another, in whom alone is our salvation. Amen.